listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Okay, can we hear? Everyone can hear? Good. Good morning. My name is Nick Lipscomb, and I am a lay lay elder here at Sojourn Montrose, and I'm glad to be with you here on this fine December morning. And that means it is the first Sunday of Advent. For those who don't know, you may have heard in the beginning, but Advent is the beginning of the church's liturgical calendar year. As the Western world is winding down for the end of the year and the coming new year, making the resolutions, the church is actually already starting its new year and turning its collective heart towards preparation and anticipation of the celebration of the first arrival of the incarnate word, the Son of God, the Christ. To be clear, we truly believe that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, experienced an actual birth, lived an actual human baby life, child and man, and was also fully and truly divine that entire time. He has always been the divine Son of God before taking on the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and we believe he will continue being that exactly, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, for all eternity. For those who have dived into our Advent devotional so far, the following excerpt from the Chalcedonian Creed of 451 will be familiar to you, and I will read it. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, and all things like unto us without sin." begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. So this is where we stand. This is what we celebrate. Even more than that, the season of Advent serves a dual purpose, both the celebration of this truth and the anticipation of Christ's return. In our hearts, we prepare him room. The victory is secure, and we eagerly await the end of sin and death. This is the message of Advent. And our hope is not based in myth or hearsay. No, God himself, through his word, prophesied the coming of the Messiah. He did not leave his people hanging, so to speak. We will see throughout this Advent season here at Sojourn in our series on prophecies that God gave these prophecies to his people to promise his people that help would arrive soon. And just like the Israelites, we are not left wondering either. As it says in Revelation 22, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds this morning to the season of Advent and that you would truly prepare room in our hearts to receive you, to behold you, to enjoy you, to worship you. I ask that you would bless this message and bless the hearers. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Before we dive into the text, I have a few questions. By show of hands, who is actually excited for Christmas? 
All right, we got a full room. Everybody, everyone here is excited? That's awesome. I do see a few fellow festive dressers. I got a green sweater, some plaid back there somewhere, a buffalo check. All right, we're in good shape, um, in this, at least in this gathering. You don't have to raise your hands on this, but maybe, maybe a part of you, some of you are not excited um, about the Christmas season. Or maybe a few of you love the season, but the actual day is hard. Um, Maybe a few of you are just like dreading the whole thing. (laughs) And maybe we all have some mixed emotions in this season. So regardless of how you categorize yourself, there is, in all of those things, an innate anticipation of things to come. Will my family get along? Will I or do I currently feel lonely during Christmas? Will I get everything done in time? Will my kids develop core memories? Do I have enough money for all those gifts? Do we have time to get all the gifts wrapped? Do we have time to get the house decorated? Do we have time to go to all the parties that we have scheduled for the month of December? And this one is one for me. Will I really dig into the meaning of the season and really soak up this Advent devotional this year? Will I really get it? Will I really get the Advent season this year and not be distracted by all the other things I just mentioned? Who's to say? When we first got married, uh, I used to tell Tate in order for Christmas to be enjoyable for me, there needed to be no expectations, zero. I wanted nothing. I wanted to anticipate nothing. I didn't want anything planned, anything at all, and I would only be happy if we just went with the flow and let things develop organically. And then she kindly pointed out that that inherently was an expectation. (laughs) So I stopped saying that. You see, like it or not, anticipation and expectation are built into this season by godly design in some ways and by culture at large in many others. And this got me to thinking, if you could distill the Christmas season down to one image or one symbol, what would it be? What would really represent Christmas, not just in the church, but in the culture at large? And what really, when viewed, evokes all the different emotions described already? So I polled a few people and got a few different answers, but what seemed to be the ubiquitous choice for representing the Christmas season was the Christmas tree. And I do love a good tree. One of my favorite things to do this time of year is to simply sit in a dark living room and stare at the warm glow emanating from that tree. It's a centerpiece. It's a focal point. It's where you gather around on Christmas morning and exchange gifts. There are ceremonies all over the world for the first tree lighting, and many cities like New York have famous giant ones that everyone recognizes. We all know what the Christmas tree is. And so that got me to thinking, well, where did the Christmas tree come from? So I won't spend hours talking about this, and I won't dive into the lore too much, but the Yule tree was originally placed in celebration of the pagan midwinter holidays and winter solstice, so same time of year. Christians, however, chose to redeem the application of a decorative tree. And so in Germany in the 15th century, um, Christians began to use fir trees hung with apples as the main prop in a play about Adam and Eve. And this tree was not called a Christmas tree, it was called a paradise tree. And that was placed in the homes on December 24th, and that is also historically the religious feast day or festival of Adam and Eve. I never knew. So on December 24th, the homes of Christians were meant to be tiny representations of the Garden of Eden. So you find yourself out caroling in the 1400s, you might encounter a paradise tree, and immediately your thoughts and your heart should be carried into that Genesis story. You see the paradise tree, and you think the garden. You think about what was perfect and beautiful and good. You think about the peace and the prosperity. You think about 
being fruitful and multiplying and walking with God and having intimate connection with him. But you might also see that paradise tree and think about the fact that that's where our father, first father and first mother believed lies and failed to trust that the Lord is good. You might see the tree and you remember that that is where sin entered the world and severed our lifeblood and where we were actually cut off from the tree of life. But then you might also remember that there still remains hope, and even then, in the garden, the seeds of anticipation were planted. Genesis 3.15, The Lord God said to the serpents, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so you, as a caroler, as an observer of the festival of Adam and Eve on December 24th, you rejoice in anticipation of the offspring that would come. You eagerly await the celebration of his birth the very next day, December 25th, Christmas. Or maybe you're a caroler who just wants your figgy pudding and to get on with it. So regardless of where you see yourself, though, this history lesson is all fine and good, and you're probably wondering at this point, when is he going to talk about the Bible? Why are you talking about trees so much? I will move there, I promise. So there is power in symbols, and in fact, God in his wisdom has seen it fit to scatter imagery and metaphor throughout his word on purpose. These symbols are meant to open the eyes and the hearts of the listeners to the grandeur, expansiveness, and infinity of the speaker. For a symbol is meant to carry the weight of a thousand words, and in its simple display, invite us into the immense complexity it is meant to represent. So the Christmas tree is a symbol, and I'll tell you why. Let's talk about the text, though. All right, Jeremiah lived during the fall of Israel and Judah. The nations were divided. There were more evil and unfaithful kings than not. And generally speaking, everything was falling apart. And Jeremiah was a prophet that was preaching repentance and a call back to righteousness, and probably most people weren't listening or even recognized the fact that they needed to be righteous or wanted righteousness. They were perfectly fine living in their unrighteousness and their disregard for the God of Israel. So we see at the end of Jeremiah, everything's falling apart so much so that the book closes with the fall of Jerusalem and the literal burning of the temple. Jeremiah 52.13 reads, Nebuzaradan burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. You see, the temple, the fact that Yahweh dwelled amongst the people was what defined them. That's what actually set them apart. It was the God who lived in Israel amongst his people, the God who came to dwell with them, and that was his house, and it was burnt. So we see that the destruction of the house of the Lord was as good as stripping away the identity of the Israelites. The burning stripped away that identity both spiritually and physically, For right after this, in history, many of them were carried away into exile. So the house of the Lord was burned, and the people no longer had a home, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally as well. They were homeless. They were without a name. And Jeremiah did see this coming, and as the world collapsed around him, as he pleaded with the people to repent and turn from their sin, Jeremiah would be preaching to a people in seemingly eternal winter of the soul. Always winter and never Christmas. But in the midst of this turmoil, Jeremiah would be given a symbol 
to share with a people in need of remembrance and salvation. So we just read it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. And so what is this promise? Way back in Exodus chapter 19, the Lord spoke to the people through Moses, and in verse 5 and 6, he said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So how does the Lord intend to see this promise kept? How does the Lord say, I'm going to keep this promise, thinking about it then in Exodus 19? Here's the answer. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So what do we learn here? God's covenant with his people in Exodus was predicated upon their obedience, or in other words, their righteousness or rightness in following God's law. God said, be obedient, be righteous, and you will be my treasured possession. That was the contract that he made with them, the covenant. And we see already, as we talked about in Jeremiah, that everyone blew it. Nobody followed that contract. Nobody followed that covenant. No one cared about righteousness. And yet God still in his mercy said, I'm still going to keep my promise. And how is he going to do it? Jeremiah tells us here that a branch, a person, would fulfill the requirement of obedience. He will be just. He will be righteous. Excuse me. He will be righteous, and his righteousness will spread everywhere he walks. And because of the branch's righteousness, the people, the nation, would be saved and have peace and security. And let me point this out. Verse 16 is actually saying that Jerusalem, the city itself, would be called the Lord as our righteousness. What does it say? For all, excuse me, in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it, Jerusalem, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So we see that the city who didn't have a name, who didn't have a home, would be given a new name, a new identity. And we can take that to mean that the people themselves, the very people, would be given a new name and a new identity. And this is all because of the work of the branch. Jeremiah goes on to say, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The branch will be a king and a high priest, and will thus fulfill the promise of kingdom of priests that God said would happen in Exodus. And this is not the only time Jeremiah talks about the branch. Earlier in his book, in chapter 23, verses 5 through 6, it says something very similar. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So here we do reconfirm that the branch will be king and a wise one at that, but notice the difference between the end of verse 6 and the end of chapter 33, verse 16. And this is the name by which he, the branch, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Is this a mistake? No, it's not a mistake or a misunderstanding. This is intentional. The people and the king, the branch, will share a name. They will be bound by the fact that covenantal obedience, covenantal righteousness would be provided by the Lord himself. 
So how does that work? I think we need to take a look at a few more points on the resume of the branch. So fast forward to another prophet, Zechariah. In chapter 3, it says this, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Zechariah 3, 8 through 10 goes on to say, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Y'all know I love a sycamore fig. So here we have Joshua the high priest representing Jerusalem washed clean of sin. And as a foretaste, Zechariah tells us that the servant, the branch, will usher in a day in which the iniquity of the whole land will be washed away. And that peace will follow. And that peace will be extended to all people. And we see the garden restored. We see winter ending. The fig tree will blossom and give shade to all who choose to sit beneath the cool of its leaves. In all three accounts that we just read, we are appointed to a future that exists in the workings and plans of the Lord. Quote, Behold, the days are coming. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. This is an advent. This is an arrival. This is anticipation of a future in which a promise of righteousness and restoration are fulfilled. And when Jeremiah made these prophecies, he was talking to a people who maybe didn't even care. But there were some who did. And maybe you resonate now. Yes, things are bad right now. Yes, your sin and your sorrow are ever before you. Yes, you are lonely, tired, lost, sad, depressed, and you may sit in darkness, but just wait. Just wait. There is a tomorrow coming, a dawn by which everything will be changed. A branch is coming. A Messiah is coming. A Savior is coming. Hold on. Just wait. We have yet to answer one important question. Why the symbol of a branch? Why is it the branch? The branch is springing forth from the tree of David. David, the great king of Israel. David, who has promised his throne and his kingdom are to be established forever. The offspring, the branch of David, will come and he will be a good and a wise and a righteous king. His name, which he will share with his people, will be the Lord is our righteousness. And so we may revisit that earlier question. How is it possible? How is a king, a king, king of the universe, going to share a name with his people? There's nothing else like that in any other thing that I know about. No king gladly and willingly shares his royal right with the commoners. 
Part of the reason that early Christians used fir trees was the fact that they are evergreen and continue to be a symbol of life in the season of winter where growth is subdued, or in other words, the season of death. That is what winter represents. Thy leaves are so unchanging, not only green when summer's here, but also when it's cold and drear. Ring a bell? We went and um, got our Christmas tree for our house on Friday, and it's great fun. We go to a little farm, and we actually cut down the tree, and it rained, and it was chaos, and the boys loved it. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking about it after the fact. These trees that are meant to be symbols of life and are evergreen have to be cut down to actually live in our houses. So in other words, they, we actually have to kill the tree to be able to experience its beauty. And so after all, as we talked about before, the paradise tree that I mentioned in the beginning is a reminder both of our sin and the promise of the Messiah offspring. The death of the tree gives light and a sense of life to the beholder. And you know, we do this, and perhaps the gardener was okay with that. Perhaps the great gardener was fine with that exchange. In fact, I know he was. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how we share a name with the king. Christ himself, the branch, was in no way sinful, was in no way deserving of any punishment, and he exchanged himself, he exchanged his very life for us. We have been given his pure kingly vestments, and he put on our filthy rags. He gave us his obedience and took on the punishment for our unrighteousness. We couldn't uphold that covenant in Exodus 19. And we could not obey those mans. We could not follow the law. And yet God, who wanted to keep his promise and wanted to love his people, said, I'll send my son to do it for you. And so the branch went. The branch did it for us. He executed justice, but not against us, against himself. And we were saved. And in the moment of his death on the cross of wood, he removed the iniquity of the land of all peoples who trust in him in a single day. And this is what it means that we, the church, those who trust in Jesus, are the righteousness of God. The promise and the covenant is fulfilled. We are God's treasured possession. We have the obedience of Christ applied to us. We are safe and secure. And when God looks upon us, he smiles and looks not in judgment, but in approval. We are his. And so when we think about the joy of Christmas, and I hope that many in the room do who proclaim Christ, but if we're real with ourselves, if you were to stand before the throne of God today, is there a part of you that would think, mm, I, did, I shouldn't be here? And the truth is that if we're in Christ, that's a lie. You do. You do belong. You can stand before the throne of God and be accepted because of the branch. This is the joy of Christmas that God chose to dwell with us in peace and reconciliation. So you see, the branch 
the branch became a curse. Galatians 3, 13 through 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The branch would stretch himself out upon that cursed tree and entwine himself with it, become it. And he would exchange his life for our life. And reading these texts from Jeremiah make it clear that if anyone was listening, the people could expect, could anticipate a coming Messiah and subsequent salvation from their sin and unrighteousness. But in the context of the verses we read, it may have been missed that what would be that, that would be accomplished by the sacrifice of the Messiah himself. But God knew. And Christ himself knew that he would be born into the world to die. He knew that he would be giving up his eternal glory to be laid in a feeding trough, to put on filthy garments and exchange himself for the people he loves so dearly. Advent is the time and the season to celebrate the birth of Jesus, no doubt. But it also comes with the weight of the knowledge that that child would be raised up as a sacrificial lamb. That's why he was born in a manger. And to God be the glory, because in this, because of this, we inherit his name. The Lord is our righteousness. He gave us his righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own, that we did nothing to earn or do or deserve. And he has called us adopted brothers and sisters. And I'll read it again. For, his, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the thing about the Christmas tree is that it's not just some tree sitting in your living room. It's not dark. It would be weird if you just had an undressed tree sitting there. But Christmas trees are festooned with lights and ornaments, and they got a star on top. It is beautiful, and it's wonderful to look at. And if you take just a moment to gaze on its glory, that may turn into minutes or hours, and you may get lost. So we went and got our tree, right, and we came home um, pretty late, and so the tree went in our house undecorated, at least to the boys' perspective, but when they woke up in the morning, I was expecting this, oh, what a wonderful tree, and Winston, actually, the first thing he said is, hey, it needs a star on it. <laughs> and the thing is, he's not wrong. The branch is no different. He is not destined or was not destined to remain cursed forever, but was resurrected and is now living and reigning, a tree of life crowned with all glory and honor, and he has invited us to gaze upon his beauty, to sit beneath his boughs and limbs and be at peace, and to invite our neighbors to do the same. You look at the Christmas tree and you see Jesus and you embrace him in all of his majesty and worthiness and might. That is the point of the Christmas tree. So this Advent season, wherever life might find you, whatever emotions and feelings you might have, whatever loneliness, whatever anxiety, whatever worries or fears or sin that's unrepented that are producing winter in your heart, when you see the Christmas trees lighting up the windows of you or your neighbor's houses, be reminded of the righteous branch who has given you his name. Take heart in its branches 
Let their evergreen limbs remind you of the life that is found in Christ. Gaze upon their beauty and be reminded of a kind and gracious king who is covered in glory. See the tree and see the curse lifted. See the tree and see the advent of the branch who has exchanged himself for you. See the tree and look forward to, anticipate, eagerly await the day in which he will come again. Every time you look upon a Christmas tree, every time you appreciate its beauty, be filled with a hope in the knowledge that God has come and he, the Lord, the Christ, this Jesus, is our righteousness. Look upon the tree and no longer see a curse, but see acceptance and forgiveness and freedom to enjoy God and holiness and let that drive your heart towards worship. For everyone who is a Christian in the room, you're going to see trees all over the city and your house all month. And what now a better time than to every time you see one say, wow, Christ really is that big and really is that glorious. Normally, in closing, we pray ad lib, um, but for praying for this message, I found a liturgy in Every Moment Holy, which is a collection, a collection of liturgies for everyday life, so it's a book that you can buy, and I thought it was appropriate for this very topic, so this will be my closing prayer, and I would ask you to bow and pray with me, but let's soak up these words together. O oh, Emmanuel, we would find in our traditions these reminders of the wonders of your love. First, let our fragrant trees cut down and then raised beneath our roofs remind us how once upon a time the high king of heaven consented to be cut off from the glories that were his birthright and descended instead to dwell with us in a broken world beset by harm and evil. Praise be to you, Emmanuel. Let the hard wood of the trunk and the outstretched branches remind us how the same heavenly king who had entered our world on that distant night would soon act to redeem his creation and his people in it, though it would require the stretching out of his arms upon a cross of wood, his death for our life. Praise be to you, Emmanuel, God with us. Let these evergreen boughs be a reminder of his mighty triumph over death and hell and of his resurrection unto a life eternal which will never fade, an eternal life which he has also secured for us. There is no greater gift. Praise to you, Emmanuel. And as we drape the branches of our Christmas trees in glittering finery and sparkling lights, let us imagine Christ our King, seated upon his heavenly throne, arrayed in the royal raiments of his glory. And when we, at last, we set the star atop our trees, let us imagine Christ crowned in his splendor and all creatures in heaven and on earth bowing before him, crying, holy, holy, holy. Glory be to you, Emmanuel. Worthy are you, O Lamb of God, to receive all glory, honor, and praise. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.